Yeah, I do. I do know I'm hosting it. I have a quick PSA before we get into anything today. Um, I would just like to say, if you're a pirate enthusiast wondering if a certain island coastal town would love for you to descend upon it every Halloween and completely ruin our cool and actually fun Halloween parties that we have here, the cat in the hat has thing one and thing two right here for you. That's what I got to say. That's what I got to say. Fresh out of the oven. It's Cinema Bums. I'm the cat in the hat. Um, and I'm Emmett. <laughs> Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie and popular film franchises, one each week, to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today, we are returning to our miniseries, Can't Stop the Peeling, covering every film written by Jordan Peele. We will fully spoil today's film, Wendell and Wild, but we will not spoil any future entries in the series. Wade, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Emmett. Happy Halloween. Ooh, happy Halloween. How are you doing? Feeling spooky. Feeling spooktacular. I want the listener at home to know that Emmett is wearing a cat in the hat costume from the neck down <laughs> that looks like Emmett in the face right now. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. Wade is also dressed as me. He is wearing black. So <laughs> That's true. it is a very accurate costume as well. I've been thinking recently that maybe I should go back to my old fashioned sense of just wearing all black all the time. Yeah. I've really been thinking about it. Sure helps when you're like walking down the aisles at Target wondering what you should buy to put on your body and then you see a rack of black shirts. <laughs> all right. Wade, I see here that there's an update. On the schedule, for our listeners to know about going into the new year and or with the results of the Bumtober bracket almost in, Mm. I guess this won't come out in time for them to go and vote, will it? No, but we're recording this on the 30th of October, so we're very close to knowing who wins Bumtober, but we don't know yet. We're all on pins and needles. I can tell you that if it's not the Muppets, I will be boycotting. (laughs) I'm really, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but I feel like Muppets got out pretty quick last year and it looks like it could be going to the top this year. It could take it. It's Muppets versus Wes Anderson. Today. Today. And honestly, I feel like what a traitorous move on Wes to betray his own people like this, go out and try (laughs) to make his own movies. You know that man is a Muppet who crawled out of Jim Henson's creature workshop sometime <laughs> in the mid seventies and has just been like doing his own thing ever since. So I'm saying come back home, Wes and Muppets <laughs> for the win. I am excited for you if they actually win, because I know how big of a fan you are. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Formative. So we'll know about that. Uh, you'll know about that by the time this episode actually drops. But Wade, what is the change in the schedule that's uh, that's going to happen because of this? Whenever you are listening to this, it means that Webhead Summer is officially over and the break in scheduling, the irregular scheduling is officially over. This episode is going to be coming out first. And then after this, we're going to start our Baz Luhrmann series, our series about the films and one TV episode of director Baz Luhrmann. But thanks, everyone, for sticking around and listening. Sorry that the schedule has been so irregular these last few months. But starting with Baz, we should be back to our regular Tuesday, every Tuesday. Back on the ball, one episode a week. 
you'll be listening in real time along with us, which I'm really excited for. We've already recorded a lot of those episodes. There was a thought at one point they might be out in October, so some stuff might be a little weird, like the count at the end might be wrong, or there might be some week where we say, like, we're doing Wendell and Wild next. I'll see what I can do in the editing. Imagine that. Things getting weird on this podcast. <laughs> As if that's not what you're already listening for, you little freaks. But anyway, it, the takeover, the break's over. Welcome back to Cinema Bums, starting with this excellent little Halloween special that timed out so nicely for us. Perfect timing. Well, today's episode is on the new film, Wendell and Wild, the stop motion animated film that was released October 28th, 2022 Mm -hmm. by Netflix. So available for all of you to watch at home with your cousin's password that you haven't told them about. This film was directed by Henry Selick and written together by Mr. Jordan Peele and Henry Selick, which is why we are covering it. Uh, It was based on a story that Henry Selick and Clay McLeo Chapman wrote. More on that later. But uh, we're covering it because of the Jordan Peele aspect. And the other creative obviously here is Henry Selick, the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas, came out in 1993. Not a Tim Burton film, as is often misattributed. Often remembered as a Tim Burton film. Produced by Tim Burton, but not directed Mm -hmm. by Tim Burton. Uh, He also directed James and the Giant Peach in 1996. The live-action stop-motion hybrid film Monkey Bone in 2001. And Coraline in 2009. This is his first film, 13, unlucky 13 years later, since Coraline. Emmett, um, talk to me about Henry Selick. Uh, did you grow up on those movies? What do you think about it? Okay, the whole, like, is Nightmare Before Christmas, like, misremembered as Tim Burton, and then there's all of these, like, there's Corpse Bride. Which Tim Burton did actually direct. Which he did actually direct. And Frankenweenie, too, I believe. And Frankenweenie. So there's like a stop motion crossover. There's like the horror, the children's horror stop motion crossover thing with them is is real and confusing. I was not raised on these movies except for The Nightmare Before Christmas, which I probably watched in like high school and was like into it as, you know, kind of an emo Christmas movie. But watching it, like watching it again, it is like very much more of a Christmas movie and not really a Halloween movie. It's a spooky Christmas movie much more than it's a like Halloween movie, I would say. We started rewatching it and I didn't finish rewatching it this time. Then same thing happens with James and the Giant's Peach. I'd never seen it before and we started it and then we were like, oh, this is like actually too weird. Uh, and it's a musical <laughs> yeah. and the songs are like not good. So that was a, a little bit of a turnoff. I remember watching Sub of Monkey Bone at some point in high school Uh that's like a true vision and i want to watch that movie and then compare it to this um but i haven't seen it and then i love Coraline, and i remember when we all watched Coraline together whose first time watching it was it my first your first time watching it right a year or two ago when we watched it yeah and what were your thoughts then well i had read the book Coraline. When I was in middle school, I think, mm. because we had we had to read in my Battle of the Books team. And I was truly so haunted by the book. Ugh. 
the book Coraline in a huge way, in part because the big thing in Coraline is that there are like these little half closets. There's this like small door Mm -hmm. that is in the wall of one of the rooms that's locked in this new house she moves into. And eventually Mm -hmm. she gets through it and takes her to another world. And the house we lived in when I was in middle school had these two closets upstairs, Uh, uh. like big closets. And at the back of the closet, if you like crawled through, there was a little tiny door to like attic space. And that was so terrifying to me after I had read that book. So I never wanted to see the movie and then watched it for the first time a couple of years ago. The movie is, I would say a little bit less sort of just like, abject horror than the book is but it does a great job of adapting the spirit of it Mm -hmm. and also when i think about these movies i think that Coraline is the only one that is really structured like a horror movie Mm -hmm. even though it is for kids like Coraline is the one that sort of has a monster that the character is being haunted by and is like tense and leads to this like terrifying conclusion yeah. Nightmare Before Christmas, and I would say this movie, Wendell and Wilde, have like scary designs, but are more sort of like fantasy almost. Yeah. In genre. Yeah. I was really scared of James and the Giant Peach as a kid. I think I only watched it once. It was just so creepy. Mm-hmm. Like, I still remember it. And Nightmare Before Christmas, I feel like most people's experience is like you said, like watching it in your emo phase Uh or maybe like seeing it on Disney channel when you're like a kid and too young for it. Uh But my experience of the nightmare before Christmas is that it is my dad's favorite movie. Oh my God. (laughs) My dad loves the nightmare before Christmas for whatever reason. He's not a hot topic phase sort of man. (laughs) He's like, um, this like middle-aged guy who likes classic literature but for whatever reason he loves the nightmare before christmas Christmas. so to me growing up it was actually kind of like oh god we've got to watch the nightmare before christmas again Mm, okay so it becomes like one of those year like annual annual was it a christmas or halloween experience for y'all i feel like it was more around halloween around halloween but sometimes around christmas too you could sneak in two viewings a year sometimes. Yeah. My dad loves it. He has a little statue of the mayor. He loves the mayor and Oogie Boogie a lot. Um, I think we got him some slippers <laughs> look like oh Oogie Boogie God. one year. That's good. And I felt real Oogie Boogie vibes from Buffalo Belter in this movie. Oh, yeah. This movie, the score is by the French composer Bruno Coulet who also did Coraline. It runs an hour and 45 minutes, which is pretty long for one of these stop motions. I think that Nightmare is like 70 minutes. Nightmare is pretty short. It was released directly on Netflix. They claim to put it in theaters for a week beforehand. Mm -hmm. I have to say that it only played in one theater in New York City, and it was not even the theater that Netflix owns and shows its movie at. Whoa. So they really were not promoting this thing. Damn. I just got sort of dropped on Netflix. But I do think it's a momentous occasion. It's first film in 13 years. Yeah. Got generally positive reviews. 72 on Metacritic. 
And Emmett, I feel like all of our audience, and especially me, would really benefit from you trying to walk us through the increasingly elaborate plot of this movie. Yes. And this movie. What? This movie. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about this movie. I know that I've just been talking a lot, but I want to say, you know, we watch a lot of movies on this podcast. Sometimes movies are all visuals. You know, I'm I'm thinking of something like Black is King. Like Uh there's a loose narrative there, but like it is visually unbelievable. And you're in awe of that. Sometimes movies are all plot. Maybe something like Incendies. Like the filmmaking Uh, is still good, but there's no, you know, it's not like headlined by the technical aspects. It's headlined by the story. Right. Absolutely. This movie is somehow both all visuals and all plot. It's (laughs) insane. And still has time for several Key and Peele sketches <laughs> of the, uh, uh-huh. like, Wendell and Wilde doing, like, Key and Peele demon guys. Let me start, because I loved this movie. Mm. But let me see if I can recreate it in my mind. <laughs> Given that I watched it less than two days ago. All right. Starts off with our young protagonist, Kat. Mm-hmm. Um, she's at some sort of grand opening for a brewery or some sort of event for a brewery. Her parents are there in the background. They are cool, like middle-aged black brewery owners in this small town. And they have just been like, absolutely not. We are not selling our property so that they can put up a private prison here. You're like, Oh, sweet Jesus. This is awesome. (laughs) Right (laughs) off, like right off the jump where we, that's where we start. They're having a celebration. But Kat seems to be kind of like oblivious to that. She's a young kid. She's just going around. And then they are on a car ride home in the rain that night. And they're going across the creaky bridge. And she sees a demon worm in her apple and screams. Mm -hmm. Because she screams, her dad like veers the car off the bridge. Both her parents drown. And she like barely escapes with her life. Then she is taken to an orphanage. This is all happening in the first like three minutes of this movie. It's a very traumatic opening. It's very like, it's like really shocking. And, and Arabella was like, why is it always so sad when people die in animated movies in particular? And we were like ruminating on that. But I mean, this is a particularly sad time. She's taken to an orphanage. Eventually she gets, she is like thrown into juvenile detention center and is eventually given a second chance with some program that sends her t- back to her hometown, which is now completely gone, is like completely dead. Yeah. Like total like urban decay or suburban decay or whatever. And partially because there was a fire not long after her parents died that burned down their brewery as well and like killed a bunch of their workers and kind of shut down anything, like all of the good industry in the town, basically. So now most of the town is owned by Clax Corp, who is like a prison profiteering couple who want to build prisons there in the property of the old brewery, but can't do it. Like they currently have a bunch of good old liberals sitting on the on the council board. So that's good. They're not going to let the private prisons build there still, even though like they don't have a lot of power, but they have like community power, even though they've, they've got these two evil rich people plotting against them. Yes. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. <Take> breath. <laughs> right. And that's just sort of the background world. Set up. And that's just kind of happening. 
Yeah. And so she arrives at the school. Kat does. Mm-hmm. She is an angry, angsty, like punk rock sort of teen. She's very different than all of the other girls there. Yep. There's this group of three girls who is like, like the preppy girls who want her to be part of them, but she doesn't like really vibe with them mm-hmm. or anyone. And then there's this guy, Raul, who is a trans boy who's at the school and he wants to be friends with Kat because he thinks they they vibe and is like, those girls mean well, but like, don't mess with them, basically. Yeah. And so there's like this sort of high school friendship drama going on mm-hmm. there. Then there's a nun. Uh there's a nun who is also maybe got magic powers. Uh-huh. Sister Helly. Sister Helly. By Angela Bassett. Yeah. So she's maybe got magic powers. Where are we? Have we even gotten to Wendell and Wild yet? I don't think so. So cut to 3,000 feet below the earth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and there's this gigantic demon mm-hmm. named Buffalo Belter who has basically an ecosystem of his whole body, including a amusement park that rests on top of his stomach. This whole body ecosystem is staffed by all of his children, of which two demon brothers named Wendell and Wilde, played by Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele, are. The vibe is like when people die, they get sent to this scream fair, this amusement park, but it's not actually that good. And Wendell and Wilde have a dream to leave behind their jobs and like create their own amusement park, which they have like big designs for and they think would be better. They yes, they want to open a better theme park of the danged, is what they is what they call it. <laughs> these people, these are the souls of the danged. Um and they uh, presumably are bad enough to go to hell but not bad enough to have anything really bad happen to them because they are just riding around on like scary rides all the time that sometimes like crash, but they seem to be like perfectly fine. These weird little like wispy souls seems like a pretty sweet deal. If you ask me, (laughs) uh, and then Wendell and Wilder are like, yeah, we're going to do an even better version of this basically. So we have to escape. So they need to be summoned to the real world. And they eat some magic hair cream, which has all sorts of properties in this movie. Yes. Because uh, their main job is putting hair plugs in their dad's head mm-hmm. and making them grow with this magic hair cream. Well, they realize that it will resurrect certain things. So they're like, oh, that's cool. Then they're like, well, what if we eat some of it? So they do that. And then in basically a psychedelic sequence are introduced to Kat. Mm-hmm. And you're like oh, whoa, we should get her to summon us. Through some shenanigans, they managed to get her to summon them. But there's so much shenanigans involved. But basically, they go to get her to summon them. Meanwhile, back at the golf course, we got the two evil people. Guess who else the evil prisons for profit are working for? Couldn't be the Catholic Church. And then they murk a man, drop him in the ice, because he's gonna because he's basically blackmailing them the old father of the school he just basically is blackmailing them to be like yo i need more money for my school and i know that y'all burned down the brewery and so they mm-hmm. murder him in cold blood yeah they were responsible for the fire 
Um, not responsible for the death of her parents, but responsible for the fire that burned down the main source of income in the town. Also killed a lot of the town members. Yeah, killed like 20 people who worked for her parents and presumably were like everybody's friends. And the other thing with them is that they need to get the city to approve them building a private prison, Mm -hmm. which they haven't been able to do because the only people left in the community are like a paralegal, a teacher, like essential workers, basically. And two old women. (laughs) Two old women who have turned against, you know, the their corporate overlords, basically. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what happened to all the people who elected us into power in the first place? Well, they're all dead. Yeah. They have all died. They all elected them into power and then died before any of the consequences of their actions happened. Exactly. So they now, at some point, come up with the idea to employ Wendell and Wilde to resurrect those council people so they will go to the vote and vote for them to be approved for the private prison. Yes. This happens in a completely arbitrary and hilarious way when a rock diverts their path up from hell. They're being summoned straight up from hell and a rock diverts their path. They pop up in the wrong part of the graveyard and they end up resurrecting the father first. And then he's the one who comes up with this whole plot. We're going to resurrect all these other old people. Meanwhile, Raul steals some of the hair, the magic hair cream, and he runs and takes it to Kat's parents. And resurrects them. So now you've got Kat's parents are back too. But that's like kind of weird and unsatisfying for her too. Because they're, you know, undead and creepy. Yeah, it is like literally whatever state their body is in is how they return. So her parents are sort of half there. The father is like disfigured from how he was murdered. And then the old council people who presumably died like a long time ago are just skeletons. Exactly. Yeah, they've got like worms crawling out of their eyes and stuff. So there's some good gross outs, some like pretty good. This is where a lot of the fun visual stuff is at play, although it's at play throughout all of this, truly. Yeah. Gosh, then there's all of this stuff with Sister Helly and the janitor. And yes, they're catching demons together and she's a hell maiden, too. And uh-huh. I don't know. They, they have. Cat has sworn herself allegiance. She has met back up with Wendell and Wild, sworn allegiance to them in order to get them to resurrect her parents. Mm-hmm. Then they're like, oh, but we're not going to do it. Otherwise, we won't get the money for our theme park. That's what the old dude said. Raul does it anyway. Meanwhile, also, Raul has been working on an art project this whole time. But don't worry about that. That's just, <laughs> that's only going to be the deus ex machina of the movie. Don't worry about it. Then... She has to overcome the demon and, like, face, basically face her trauma demon. Yeah. Of all this, like, stuff that she went through, starting with, like, she basically feels like she killed her parents. And then she has to, like, face that and all of this other horrible stuff in her past from being in the juvenile detention system and stuff. And then she's like, hell yeah, I've got the power now. And she has the power to, like, predict the future, basically. Mm -hmm. So then she sees the evil plan and they go... The resurrected people get the vote. The prisons are going to be built. They've got the bulldozers at the ready. They're going to do it. And ensues a wild sequence where like, it's just like her and her zombie folks and her little ragtag band of heroes versus all of these bulldozers. And they completely mess stuff up. 
and stop them from knocking over the water tower, which was going to be a particularly disastrous moment for the town. Uh, then Buffalo Belter, who has realized that Wendell and Wilde are no longer on his body at his employ, comes up to the surface world himself, disrupting his whole ecosystem and amusement park stuff, comes up to the surface world and is basically like a gigantic monster over the town. Yeah. And people are freaking out and scared. Uh-huh. And he's just basically got everybody and is going to squish all of them because they're annoying him and take Wendell and Wilde back is what looks like what's going to happen. But then the heat from him being there melts the snow that was on the roofs of all the houses. We see that Raul's secret huge project has been this like this beautiful painting of like a woman warrior fighting a snake, like a two headed snake, right? I mean, just like truly intense stuff. And then the demon is like, oh, that's like a parent protecting its kids. We can all relate to that. And is like won over because he's not that evil of a demon. Yes. And apparently he has like either exiled or lost or something has happened to all of his other children except for Wendell and Wilde mm-hmm. who leave. And then at this point, the janitor reveals that all of these demons he's been catching over the years have been Buffalo Velter's children. And he agrees basically to free them all and return them all to their father. Yeah. And then we get satisfying stuff where the Clax people, they're locked up. To basically, they resurrect witnesses as well who could bring back. They could bring back witnesses to the fire and have people who could accuse them in court. Because in this town, if you are resurrected undead, you are both allowed to vote on the town council (laughs) and give testimony in a court of law. They're in uncharted territory, right? But this town council needs to get on that now and like figure out what they're doing. Are they going to let dead, like dead people vote or not? They're like, you know, like what what are we going to do about this? Furthermore, the Clax Corp married couple while they're in the car being taken away. Uh-huh. Um, the wife murders the yeah, husband. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's absolutely. She's like. Well, I think at the last second, the husband, who looks basically exactly like a black Donald Trump, yeah. says that it was all her fault and she was the one who made him do it. And then she strangles him with her handcuffs yeah. as they're being taken away. Yeah. In a particularly grisly moment. She's she's terrified. She also is the one who kills the she like cracks the uh, the father over the head. Father knows best. Yeah. So yeah, this is this is this crazy movie which is just kind of awesome about about not locking people's kids up. Like I think is is would be the message here. The other end is that Buffalo Belter with all his kids goes back to his place and Wendell and Wilde are going to get to construct their dream amusement park on his stomach to make like a new one where all of the yeah the souls will go and there's some there's some sweet stuff where they realize that basically the hair cream they've been using is temporary hair cream so all of these revived creatures are only going to be around for a little bit but um cat gets to say goodbye to her parents once and for all Seems like their souls might be going down to the dream park where they'll live happily for eternity. And she and she has a vision of the town becoming prosperous again. And mm-hmm. it's like 
And then there's a post credit scene where the bear comes back to life too. This trinket. I don't totally know what that was doing, but to represent a new Hellmaiden, maybe coming into the world. Maybe, yeah, yeah. So wait, that's yep. the movie. <laughs> Flopper Bob. <laughs> it is a Bob, absolutely for me. Yeah, as you may be able to tell, it's a very complex story. Yeah, I don't think it's always a thousand percent successful. I just feel like there is so much plot. I wish there were maybe a little bit more jokes or like character moments. Like it is so much like A to B to C all of this like tangled intricate web. And I wish it was maybe a little more wholly enjoyable in the story elements. Yeah. Because it is honestly a little bit exhausting at some points just to try to be keeping track of everything going on. However, it is very enjoyable just in the visuals of it. I mean, Uh it looks amazing. To be honest, it could be way worse and probably would still be a bop just because of how great it looks and how so much of it feels like Henry Selleck just flexing, basically. Like the amusement park, the opening sequence, like so much of it feels like they've come up with these ideas just basically to show how far they can go with everything visually. It's interesting that you say that because at the same time, I also read this article in the New York Times about him and Jordan Peele working together where he said for this one, he didn't innovate any new like kind of animation. He wasn't like trying to push the boundaries on anything. He was actually going back to like more classic and didn't animate digitally animate away like the like the face, the mm-hmm. face crease and like. There's certain like things on it that are like more raw, but it, you're right. It is still him flexing because it's just like the stuff that they do in this is crazy. The stuff that these characters are doing and that final post credit scene. How did they do that in phone? What was that? Yeah, that was nuts. And during the credits too, you get to see a lot of like the behind the scenes and how they actually made it. And like, that was one of the best parts of the movie to me, just yeah. seeing like the actual sets and the characters and how they handcrafted this. I mean, if you don't know, like it's not like puppets where they're moving it on screen and it's being recorded. Right. Like this, a stop motion movie is basically like a flip book. Like it's a collection of pictures where they move it minusculely. Every picture, the filming of this movie is just taking still photographs of it. Millions of pictures of it. Right. Yeah, it's 24 pictures for every one second of film. So wait, let me do the math. Okay. Okay. This movie is an hour and 45 minutes long. It's 151,200 approximately. Yeah. 150,000 pictures are what made up this movie. That's a lot. Do you think your finger would get tired after you're clicking it so many times? Well, I don't think you're doing many in a row. I mean, I think it's a very right. slow process of point. very slightly adjusting things. Yeah. How about you, Emma? Flop or bop? It's an absolute pop. I thought it was awesome. I agree that it does just get like kind of absurdly, absurdly complicated in the plotting. Or just like adding new elements and you're just like, whoa, this, okay, this janitor's a guy and I don't really understand what's up with his feet, but like, that's a thing. And oh, right. <laughs> he's like a Ghostbusters janitor. 
And apparently the two of them have been basically mining ghosts. Also, there's a direct thing in here where part of the plan that they're going to do is turn the school into a pipeline for the prison. Right. Yes. Yeah, I wrote that down too. It's like kind of interesting with what Sister Helly has been doing with the demons, like summoning them and putting them directly into jars. Like, I think there's like some sort of... There's some sort of mirror thing going on with the kids and with the demons who've been put in jars. That's all I'm... Hmm. Well, also, I don't know if you read this, but Selick's original idea for this story was a Sister Helly movie. With yes, Sister Helly as the that. main character. Yeah. And I think it was Peel who was like, you know, it's for kids. Like, I think it would mean a lot to kids to have a kid as the lead in this. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that instead of taking that arc... They kept Sister Helly as like a background character and added a new kid with an arc who is like the lead. Well, I feel like that also, and I mean, like maybe it's just because it takes so long to make these things, but these movies always feel like there's so much that's hinted at and not explored. I don't think that's something that we should lament about them, about these animated movies. Like they mm-hmm. offer up ideas. And then are like, well, we don't really have time or budget to get into those things. But you can think about that. Even like this being like an hour 45 is like, like you said, really long for stop motion. So I don't know. I feel like I've maybe also buried the lead about some of the good stuff about this movie, Mm. which is that this movie is really cool. Yes. Like it just has such a cool punk energy. Especially, I want to say the music choices throughout it are so cool. Yeah. I think a lot of it was inspired by Afropunk, which apparently both Henry Selick and Jordan Peele were huge fans of to begin with. And that's sort of what bonded them a lot in this movie. But I feel like especially if I was a kid and saw this or like a teenager and saw this, Mm. like it just has such a cool aesthetic. It feels really fresh and vibrant and i could see like being so into it as a kid because of cat's spirits and i feel like her attitude is so different than what we normally get in kids movies like she is just like a mean cold kid because of what has happened to her and she's got this like really fresh punk spirit and like yeah. i don't know you're not seeing that in in canto or whatever you know yeah she is she is cool. I mean, she's just like cold to everybody. Not just cold to the to like the preppy girls who you assume she's gonna be cold to, but also cold to to Raul, who is like somebody who you'd think maybe she would get along better with. Yeah. But like pretty consistently all the way up until like the very end mm-hmm. is is like nah. At like an hour and 20 minutes in when Raul has like been her witness and all this demon stuff. She's like, we're still not friends. <laughs> but I guess you yeah. see like, and this I think is a powerful message for kids too. I think you see that it's like, because she has these demons that have been personified and mm-hmm. she has the sequence of like making her demons work for her instead of her mm-hmm. working for them and coming to terms with all this stuff. And then she can let other people in. What did you make of all of these like big themes in it too? I mean, especially from the Jordan Peele angle. I mean, I love it. I was like, let's go for it. Let's have more movies that are head on anti-prison industrial complexes. Like that's, 
But like in a way, I don't know. It's not like a obviously that is the message. Like there's no doubt about that. But I don't feel like it's. I also don't feel like it's preachy because I feel like it's such a like they're such evil bastards basically, and you'd hate them. I don't know. I think I think it's done well. And I think the other thing is like about the the you know on the childhood drama angle of it too of like being a movie that that wants to tackle big issues in a way that is you know relatable. I feel like I read recently that some there was like some author who was like, oh well, if you can't write it for adults, write it for kids. Like if you can't figure out how to say it to an adult audience, or if you think it's like too complex for an adult audience to get then make it for kids instead. And I feel like this does that well. For sure. I think it's really interesting. Technically, this is the first major film that Jordan Peele was approached to be the writer for. Mm-hmm. Even though this is like, what, the sixth that we've covered for him? Yeah, yeah, the sixth. That's also interesting. So he's been he has been working on this that whole time. <laughs> Since, Since 2015. 2015. Yeah, exactly. That's just crazy. And to think about, like, if they were to do another starting now, what it might look like, you know? Yeah. Or, or I mean, it would just, it's, they're, they're always, like, kind of this weird time capsule. And I feel like with that, you have to commit to it. It's not like, mm-hmm. you, you can't be like, oh, <laughs> oops, like, once we start filming this, we're going to fix it in post, you yeah. know? Or like, oh, we're just going to reshoot a couple things or, like do a voiceover, cut it differently. Like you're pretty committed other than Mm. cutting out sequences. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, also like Key and Peele are also in Toy Story 4, but because that's like CGI animated, I think they could get in the booth and like do a lot of improv and it's pretty easy to like change their mouths or like change out jokes and stuff like that. Right. Here, like, I mean, they could have written a joke in 2015 and like it's, set in stone like it's being delivered here in 2022 you can't change it after the fact yeah after all the hard work so in that way i think that it is like much it's much less flexible than maybe any other filmmaking medium yeah i see an interesting question here what do you remember scaring you as a kid is this is this movie kids horror first off and then by comparison of what did scare you as a kid, if you were a kid, would this frighten you? Would you be amused, excited, etc.? I was trying to think about that while watching it. Like, would a kid really be that into this? Like, yeah, I mean, they wouldn't understand the real life politics and everything that it's right. really discussing. And it's pretty fun. But like, I don't know. Do you think a kid would be able to track everything going on in this movie and have a good time with it yeah probably i feel like certainly nine and up could probably handle it i saw someone on reddit and it was a parent who was asking could i watch this with my seven-year-old or would that be a bad idea and i was like i don't know i think you could i think a seven-year-old might be get bored i think Mm -hmm. a nine-year-old and nine and up would probably like be able to follow it and get into it and feel attached to the character but i feel like I feel like younger kids might be a little like, what is going on? You know, I feel like it would probably be best for maybe in that like 10 to 14 range, especially for like girls or punk girls in particular. Like, I feel like it would be the coolest thing in the world. 
Yes, absolutely. When you were a kid, do you remember any scary movies or just regular movies that scared you a lot? I was, I mean, I was frightened of everything. I had yeah. to watch nature. I had to watch nature videos because like Winnie the Pooh had too much plot for me as a, <laughs> as a young child, you know? So it's an interesting sort of thing to get into. I really strayed away from, from horror and scarier things. Like I would go up and look on common sense media, something we've <laughs> talked about before on here. Shout out. On ports. <laughs> Shout out to the to the dogs over at Common Sense Sponsored Media. Sponsored this week. Sponsored this week by that poor fool at Common Sense Media, who you know he must have a checklist that says like F word, S word, D word, H word, and he has to check off each time. Each time. I will always say, like, the S word is used 63 times in this movie. 63 times in this movie. It, first off, that's hilarious. That's a job. <laughs> do you think they get paid? Like, do you think they have an intern doing that? Do you think they get paid? What do, what's... I think they absolutely get paid um, because they've been in business for that long. And I'm sure they're <laughs> making ad dollars on the site. My guess is the full staff of Common Sense Media is probably like three people. And they just watch like three movies a day, basically, to try and keep up with everything coming out. They're deeply, deeply committed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, but I would be like, is this going to scare me too much? A, a perfect example is Donnie Darko, a movie which did scare me too much when I was like 15. That's a little bit older, though. Even at 15, you were still very sensitive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. What was there for us? The Corpse Bride. I definitely watched Corpse Bride around whenever it came out, but that wasn't frightening, you know? I think of Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Mm. Another, like, that's definitely kids' horror. But to me, like, when I saw that, I knew... It's not... It wasn't, like, frightening, because I knew that it was already a send-up of the genre, and it's, like, a comedy version of that. But that is, like... It's classic horror in that it follows the exact beats of the classic like werewolf story, but it is also absolutely comedy because it's Wallace and Gromit, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did you have movies that frightened you as a child? I guess the one that I think of right away was Jurassic Park. Oh. Mm-hmm. Which did really scare me. And I know I said this when we did it, I would watch it on Fast Forward through the scary parts rather than in real time. But that is the first movie where I remember, like I remember the adrenaline feeling of being scared by a movie Mm -hmm. and being like, so tense and excited by what was happening. Another one that I did not see, but I listened to my mom describe the entire plot of the movie signs Mm. to one of her adult friends. Like my mom, like basically tell a story, I guess, as we would do on this podcast over Uh like 20 minutes, explaining everything that happened in signs. And I was like, truly had nightmares from the vision of it in my head. Okay. Similar thing happens, happened to me as a kid where I heard some guy at the Ochre Folk Festival tell a story and it's like this long, funny story, but part of it is that they go to see the movie Psycho, and he described mm. certain scenes from Psycho, a movie which I had never seen, but uh-huh. which was vividly imprinted onto my memory before I'd ever seen it because of his like description of it. And I was, I was like six years old. I was afraid to take a shower for a week. 
I was <laughs> like freaked out. Yeah. I, I would always have to open the shower curtain every time I was in the bathroom. And still sometimes when I get, you know, when I get the creepiest, I have to do it. I do sometimes too. It's very vulnerable being in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, two others. I just thought of two moments the moment in Fellowship of the Ring where they make the orcs and they're like being crafted out of Ooh. mud. Mm-hmm. That was very scary to me as a kid. And one that I, I guess, did not see, so it didn't scare me. But my mom would always tell me to close my eyes at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark when uh, all the faces get melted away. Yes. So that I actually did not see until I was probably like 19 or 20 even though i watched that movie a handful of times just because i would always close my eyes at the very end Mm. i would say like well this is also still more like young teens but it was like army of darkness for me like i was too afraid to watch to watch evil dead or evil dead 2 but i was like i'll watch army of darkness so like that sort of stuff where it's like a little gross a little goofy but it's less of the tense horror. All that Lord of the Rings stuff, you know that part where Bilbo is and and he's got that part part always gets me, you know? Yeah, that's good. This is a little bit older now, but the first R-rated movie that I saw in theaters Uh was The Happening. And I Shyamalan's The Happening, where Mark Wahlberg is um, being attacked by trees. By by (laughs) trees? Oh my gosh. Is a very bad movie, but just shout out to that. And then I think shortly after that, I watched Watchmen in the theaters, which was entirely too much. Although I had read the comic, so like mm, I knew mm-hmm. the grisly images that were going to happen, but it was yeah. still rough to behold. Yeah, Zach, Zach, why do you gotta <laughs> do it, baby boy? <laughs> Zach. <laughs> All right. Well, is um. Uh, is there any behind-the-scenes drama that we should discuss? There was a lot on this. I mean, oh. really, the thing is, it's been 13 years since Gorgon, uh-huh. and it takes a while to make one of these movies, but it doesn't quite take 13 years. So mm-hmm. what all happened? In 2010, after directing Coraline, which was the film that started the studio, Leica, who also continues to make stop-motion films, um, it's not just Henry Selick keeping the industry alive, although I think that he's definitely pushing it forward. After that, he got a contract to return to Disney and work for Pixar and direct Whoa. stop motion Pixar movies for them. Whoa. And he worked very heavily on one called The Shadow King. Uh-huh. Two or three years spent in actual production on it, but it was um, had a lot of studio interference from John Lasseter who was the head then since been fired from Pixar. The inspiration for the Lotso Hugging Bear in Toy Story 3 is John Lasseter. The what? We don't have time to get all the way into that, but he was like one of the creative heads at Pixar, Uh who was basically like a malevolent overlord who was far too touchy-feely with all of his employees. Oh, Gotcha. And when they made Toy Story 3, they literally made the villain Lotso Hugging Bear, who is like the head of the daycare Damn. animals, who's like a malevolent leader. Anyway, he eventually got kicked out. And now he's running some studio for Apple TV+. Plus. So let's all look scans at that. Anyway, the movie eventually got canceled. 
Mm. By the way, that movie, The Shadow King, involved a lot of shadow puppetry, which was the inspiration for the visions in this movie, Mm -hmm. which are like shadow puppets. So after that falls apart, in 2015, this is really crazy to me that this is like so pure of a thing. But it literally was that Henry Selick was just such a gigantic fan of the show Key and Peele. Like he didn't even, he didn't know any of them. He hadn't talked to anyone. He wasn't angling for anything. It was literally that he was such a gigantic fan of Key and Peele. And he said Uh it like inspired him to start being creative again. It was just like his favorite thing in the world. So he reached out to Key and Peele. This is while the show is still going on in 2015. Uh Um, And he had basically a pitch, which was based on this book, this story and illustrations that he had written for his kids when, when they were young which was about two demon brothers named Wendell and Wilde. That was the only character. It was based on his two sons when they were little, when they were in their demon stage, he said. He wrote this <laughs> little funny story about the two of them as demons, and they were called Wendell and Wilde. And he loved Key and Peele so much that he's looking back at these two demons, and he's like, oh, they could play them. We could make some sort of movie around them. Mm-hmm. So he meets with them. Finds out that Jordan Peele is not just a funny guy, but also like an aspiring filmmaker. Uh I think at this point, Jordan Peele lets him read the script for Get Out, which Henry Selick is like, that's great. And Jordan (laughs) becomes much more involved in the actual crafting of the movie. Jordan Peele is big stop motion and Henry Selick fan and asked Henry Selick to make the production uh, logo opening thing for Monkey Bone or uh, Monkey Paw. Sorry, Monkey Paw. That we see in front of every Jordan Peele movie going back to get out the little stop motion train thing that ends with the disembodied hand stirring the cup of tea. That's directed by Henry Selick. That's so cool. So he worked with him going all the way back to this. And so basically now Jordan Peele and Henry Selick are going around town trying to get this Wendell and Wilde movie made. Jordan Peele apparently is like, listen, I think Get Out is going to flop hard. So we've got to sell this before Get Out comes out because after it, no one is going to work with me. So they're going around town and people aren't picking it up. After Get Out comes out in 2017, Jordan Peele is suddenly like the hot commodity in the market. Everyone wants to be in the Jordan Peele business. I'm sure after he won the Oscar for writing that year too. Yeah. The sale does actually happen, and in 2018, Netflix officially greenlights it, and they start, I think, full actual filming then. Wow. Good for them. And it was not so much an an easy production. It was originally supposed to be released in 2020, but it ended up getting delayed by two years, in part due to COVID having to go remote Mm -hmm. with a lot of it, and also because... It was all filmed in a warehouse in the city of Portland, which has experienced a ton of the effects of climate change. So there was a heat wave that took it to 112 degrees there, which caused them not to be able to work for a little bit. And then there were the Oregon wildfires, which also stopped them from working. And apparently at one point, like the fire got so close to the studio that all of the team had to go and do a puppet rescue. Like, we can rebuild sets, but we can't recreate these characters, the puppet characters, to be exactly the same as they are in all the stuff we've already filmed. So, like, in the middle of the smoke and fire, they'd run into the warehouse and grab all of the characters and, like, drive away with them. That's insane. That's commitment, and I love it. 
Yeah. I mean, I think we've even talked about this on the podcast because I feel like since we first did Jordan, we've been like, maybe this year, Wendell and Wilde will actually come out. Like it's been, it's been on the books for a long time, but it did finally release. Well, good for them. Incredible. A true success story. I hope, I hope it's a success for them in the long term. I think it is already in the uh, artistic sense, but I hope they make their money back and get to do another one someday. Wade, who is your MVP other than the protagonist? And I'm, I mean, we're only going to take off Kat for this one. Pretty simple for me. I know we've gone the whole episode without talking about her, but it is the character that to me is like the selling point of this movie, which is Gabby Goat. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love Gabby Goat so, so much. Cute. She is a cute little goat that like the popular girls have who is in, involved in the action at various points. I just thought like sh- her design like had so much personality. She was so cute and so funny. I feel like this is like a kid's movie thing, right? And especially like every Disney movie has to have like an animal sidekick that yeah. kids can latch onto and they can sell dolls of. But like for whatever reason, like Gabby Goat just did it for me in a way that Super none of cute. them have. Super cute. I loved her so much. And to me, like this is kind of like the Gabby Goat movie. <laughs> so I've got um I've got her on my phone. She here. really is she really is the goat. Well, that's my MVP. Emma, who would yours be? Incredible. Well, I just want to say think Kat, amazing protagonist. I love an angry young protagonist. I think that's good and fun. Always loves the fifth Harry Potter the most. You know, always for that sort of thing. MVP in this movie, it's got to be the creepy old priest guy. Mm-hmm. He is he is really funny to me. Everything he's doing and him being resurrected and still being a slimy bastard. And like, even after these people killed him, he's going to come back and try and secure the zombie vote for him. Absolute garbage, man. I loved it. Yeah, <laughs> I love. I love to hate him, and his get up as like the undead pope is pretty insane. Um, he's played by James Hong, who is I feel like a lot of people saw in everything, everywhere, all at once this year. Wow! And he is ninety three years old and still acting in two big movies this year. Whoa, that's awesome! Good for him. I I will give a little shout out to Ving Rhames as Buffalo Belter. I thought that was also a great performance and brought a lot of energy to like that aspect of the movie. And shout out to to Natalie Martinez, one of my very first teenage celebrity crushes. She plays one of the popular girls in this, just a small part, but one of my longest standing crushes and she's not in as much stuff, so I thought it was cool to see her in the credits for this. Just want to shout that out. Hell yeah. Wade, (laughs) have you any final thoughts? Oh, and what is your Jordan Peele ranking before we get into a truly wild quiz? I mean, I think the character of Raul is really cool and it's awesome to see like a trans character. So plainly in a kid's movie Mm -hmm. i have absolutely 
working at summer camps and working in schools and stuff, been around like trans kids who are, you know, as young as Raul is. And I think like presenting it as a kid would experience it, which is not like a talking point, but like someone who is very often like put with people of the opposite gender because of like schooling rules, but is like someone else hanging out with them who you just know is them. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's really cool. And I think even thinking about like, if this movie had come out in 2015, when they wrote mm-hmm. it, like think about how revolutionary that would have felt. Yeah. Time has sort of caught up to how cutting edge this movie is trying to be. Yeah. The only other thing I want to mention is that the design of Cat's house, it has the same house layout as the house in Barbarian. Were you thinking about this too? <laughs> like it has Wait. the same basement where her parents live and the same like little window you can only see the top out of from the basement to the outside. I did think about Barbarian. Yes. <laughs> well, and it's also interesting because there's a similar theme there about like having to do with like the city the decay of the city being like something other than, I mean, like it, it being either a symbol and, or like a motivating factor in this mm-hmm. um, other deeper, nastier sort of thing. Yes. And that also reminds me that the whole like economic, uh, like factory town downturn, like theme of this movie, Rust Belt mm-hmm. sort of deal uh-huh. reminded me of this video game I played called night in the woods, which was pretty good. Sounds scary as hell. (laughs) It's sort of like a good spooky time like game, but it's also about like a young girl who's returning from college to the town she grew up in, which was like a factory town that has been left behind. And Mm. a lot of the people feel weird about that. I thought the game got a little tedious at points, but I think like the first hour and the last hour when it gets to what it's actually talking about are both great. So Mm. I wanted to say that. Okay, I have gone in and like totally rearranged my Jordan Peele rankings after watching this movie and after seeing Nope three times this year. Okay, okay, wow. Let's let's hear it. It's always dangerous to do this based on your memory of the movie rather than Uh when you're actually watching the movies. But this is what I've got now. Um, Number six, I've got Keanu. Number five, Candyman. Okay. Number four is Wendell and Wild above Candyman. Okay. Then at third place, I've put Get Out. I've bumped Nope up to second place, and I still have number one, my favorite as us. Ooh. Okay. How about you, Emmett? Any any final thoughts and your peel ranking? Alright, here's my final thoughts. That particular pirate guy. If you're listening, you know who you are, and I will see you anywhere on site. Other than that, my updated Jordan Peele ranking. Oh, it's difficult because Nope is really good. Are we talking writing? Or are we talking? I mean, it's all it's only it's all down to writing, right? What we're ranking him on here is writing, correct? I was just ranking them based on based on overall enjoyment. Okay, all. okay, overall enjoyment. But that's an interesting thought. Uh, I mean, it's hard to do writing because like Candyman feels like there was a lot of stuff cut out of it. You know, like that's that's where it feels kind of incomplete. So I don't know. Okay. I'm going to go with number six, strong six, Keanu. Number (laughs) five. I think number five, Wendell and Wild, still strong, still really good. 
then Candyman, number four, and then this tricky little run. <laughs> this is where the fun begins. This is where there is uh, no third or second plays, and then there's three <laughs> movies all crammed into first plays. <laughs> I, I, what I'm, what I'm learning from having to do this is that I need to rewatch both Get Out and Us. Yeah, I feel the same way. Like that's that's what I'm hearing right now. But I'm gonna go with Nope is number three, Us is number two, and Get Out is number one right now. Wow, that's just how I'm feeling. Because I'm thinking about like which one would I most like to watch right now? I would mm. want to watch Get Out right now. So there it is, number one. If we were doing the writing, I think Get Out would be number one. Because that is basically like a perfect script. Oh, perfect. Yeah, perfect, perfect, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I fluctuate. I sometimes say us as number one. I don't know. It's it's hard. It's hard. Okay. Speaking of things that are going to be difficult, we have a quiz. Bum's the word. It's going to be Oscar-winning and nominated animated feature films. Okay? Okay. This is a list on imdb i'm just gonna pick some films off of here they're all gonna be i think from within the past 20 years okay number one this is a film from the uh animation studio disney and pixar combined okay it's from 2007 it is just about a kid from the streets who has big dreams of making it in the uh french uh, cuisine industry. Ah, this would be Ratatouille. That is correct. That is correct. Next film, also from 2007. This is a film. It's based on a famous graphic novel. It's about a precocious and outspoken Iranian girl growing up during the Islamic Revolution in the 1970s in Iran. It's not ringing a bell. <laughs> It's not ringing a bell, unfortunately. What is the title? The like? title is, I believe, the name of a city. Hmm. It's one word, and it is, the, I think, the name of a city. Is this a movie you had heard of? It's a movie I've seen. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it's not the, I don't even know how to say it, Persepolis? Or yes, it is that. Yeah, it is that. Okay. Movie. Yeah. I was just thinking animated movie with a city name. That's what I could think of. Mm-hmm. But I never knew that's what that was about. Yeah. It's really cool. I watched that when I was like 13 or 14. So that's my only memory of it. But I remember being like, that was badass. Okay. This next movie, it's a 2004 animation adventure comedy. When a son of a gangster shark boss is accidentally killed while on the hunt. <laughs> His would-be prey and his vegetarian brother decide to use the incident to their own advantage. (laughs) I believe this is Sharkdale. Ah, that is correct. The Oscar-nominated Sharktale. Insane. All right, next up, in insane that this was nominated, uh, the 2003 action adventure. This says comedy, some would say tragedy. Uh, (laughs) This is a movie whose conceit revolves around a man dying and coming back as a bear. Oh, is that what Brother Bear is about? (laughs) Or something. (laughs) Is that? (laughs) 
Uh, maybe I'm confusing it with Fluke. Sorry, spoilers for Brother Bear and Fluke. <laughs> All right. Next up is a 2002 animation adventure family movie. It's a science fiction rendering of a classic novel from a different genre. Whoa. It features a young Joseph Gordon-Levitt and is the lead in the voice, is voice acting. Whoa. Wow, 2002. Do you know who the studio was? Is this a CGI animated movie or hand animation? This is... Wait, is this Treasure Planet? It is indeed Treasure Planet. Dude, talk about a movie with some attitude when you're a kid. Yeah. Yeah. An exciting punk movie. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what you're at, but you're doing really well at this point. This next up is a 2001 animation action adventure, a tragedy for the culture. Um, <laughs> an eight-year-old boy genius and his friends must rescue their parents after the adults are abducted by aliens. That's actually a very <laughs> doesn't really narrow it down very much, does it? Now, but is this the Jimmy Neutron movie that was nominated for an Oscar? <laughs> Oh my god. For what? Marketing? <laughs> okay. Next up, it's a classic. It's a classic buddy comedy from 2001. A classic tall guy, short guy combo. Uh, okay. They're cracking jokes. They're making people scream. They're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Wait, is it Monsters Inc? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was thinking... What was Road to El Dorado <laughs> the beginning for whatever reason? Oh, yeah. You think I should put in the description for this podcast that you're tall and I'm short? And that should be our qualifications. <laughs> Maybe. All right. The last film here is a 2001 animated adventure family movie from a famous studio. During her family's move to the suburbs, a sullen 10-year-old girl wanders into a world ruled by gods, witches, and spirits, and where humans are changed into beasts. Is this Spirited Away? It is indeed Spirited Away. Well, Wade, you have won the game, let me tell you. You're killing it on the Oscar-nominated animated films from the early 2000s. Uh, while we're on the topic, Wonderland yeah. Wild, best animated picture nomination, at least, if not win yeah. this year. I hope to see it. Uh, yeah, we do hope to see it. Yes, more about that when we see our old friends again in Oscar season. But mm-hmm. until then, if you're anyone except for some <laughs> freaking pirate, then, <laughs> then stay frosted, baby. Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Wade Lawrence Holloman and me, Emmett Temple. Wade also edits and mixes the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.